life in the blur. That's a fight that we have, isn't it? To try to live a life outside of the blur, to live a life that is in focus. Well, I'm glad you're here with us this morning. And as we start our next section of our gospel project, our gospel project is something we've been going through for the last almost three years now. And in that time that we have been doing that, um, we have had the opportunity to look at the New Testament, the Old Testament, and then the gospels within the New Testament. The Old Testament, how it points to Jesus, the New Testament, how it points back at Jesus, and how the Gospels are all about Jesus. And that's really where our lives should sit. And now we are in a place, and we're going to be from today through the end of December, looking at this fight, the good fight. Fight the good fight. And what it's all about is the letters that Paul was writing to the churches of the New Testament to challenge them, to grow them, to push them into something more. He challenges them. He challenged them to fight the good fight. As a matter of fact, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, there's a young Padawan learner by the name of Timothy that is a disciple of Paul's. And he writes these words to him. He says, fight the good fight of faith. So Paul actually closes his second letter to Timothy as he is wrapping up his life literally and figuratively. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. And so as we look at that, I guess the first question we have to ask ourselves, and a question we'll probably ask ourselves over and over and over again for the next nine weeks is this. What does it mean to fight the good fight? What does it mean to fight the good fight? And, you know, I said we're going to ask that question every week, and then we'll probably tag other questions onto that one. But as we say, what does it mean to fight the good fight? I guess the next question is, what are we even fighting for? What are we fighting for? What are we fighting against? What things in this world are we fighting against? And even more so, does it even really matter? Does it matter the fight that we have? And so as we answer these questions, we're going to be diving deeper into the New Testament letters as Paul has written. But we're also going to be looking at it from the standpoint of Acts as Acts points to when he's writing these letters. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of fair warning. Two big things. Number one, pretty good chance I'm going to make you mad in the next nine weeks. Okay, I'm just laying that out there right now because as I prepared this message, I was getting mad myself. I was getting angry like, don't you dare question me on that. And I'm the one doing the questioning. So just be prepared for that. There's a pretty good chance that you're going to be mad at me at some point in time. I'm okay with that. The second thing you need to have fair warning of is over the next nine Sundays, there's going to be multiple sports references. Because Paul, if you watch and read Paul, he has lots of sports references himself. So there's going to be lots of sports references and not just sports references, but there's also, as we're talking about fight the good fight, we're going to be talking about movie lines, especially the movie Rocky. Okay, there's going to be, I mean, there's lots of them. There's Rocky 1 through 5. There's Rocky Balboa. There's the Creed 1, 2, and 3 is coming out next year. So you have all of these different quotes. So you're going to hear those kind of factored into it all because Rocky, it really shaped my life at one point in time. So it's going to be a part of shaping yours today too. As a matter of fact, when I was a kid, my friends and I, we used to play Rocky. Okay, and what we would do is we'd push all the furniture in the living room off to the side and generally, there was some sort of area rug that would be our ring, and we'd take stuffed animals. And by the way, I'm not promoting this in any way, shape, or form, children. Um, um, so we'd take stuffed animals, and we'd grip them as tight as we possibly could, and we would pretend who was Rocky and who was Clever Lang, and who was Rocky and who was Ivan Drago. So we'd have these full-on battles. Who had to be Apollo Creed? And we'd just punch each other until, yeah, I know, if we weren't smart. 
It shows a lot of why I am the way I am today, why I still can't remember a lot of things, but it's okay. So I remember, though, with Rocky, Rocky actually ruined real boxing for me, and maybe it did the same thing for you. Um, When I was a kid, I was 11 years old, my, uh, this was before pay-per-view, by the way, before um, you could get into your living room. My dad uh, had actually got us tickets to go to a place called the Sun Dome in, just out, in Sun City, just outside of Phoenix. And the Sun Dome was going to have the Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvelous Marvin Hagler fight. It was one of the ones that was a big, huge, and it was, a, it was a major deal. And so they were going to be putting it live on there. And everybody was so excited. And I went after the fight and you know, Hagler got robbed, by the way, you know, 35 years later, but th- that, that's beside the point. I remember just going, eh, eh, because Rocky, he could take a punch over and over and over, and he always had his hands down here. Come on, come on, you know, just constantly like that all the time. That's the way I thought boxing was supposed to be. So like I said, it, it's kind of ruined it for me, but in the fact of all of that, I want you to be prepared for more references to Rocky as we fight this good fight because you know what? We are in a fight. As a matter of fact, there's a guy by the name of A.W. Pink and he's a theologian. He wrote this about 1 Timothy 6.12. This is the quote. The life of faith is a fight, a warfare in which there are no furloughs and no vacations and our success therein depends upon renouncing our own strength and counting solely on the sufficiency of Christ's grace. See, Paul, he knew that. He knew that he had to trust in Christ. He knew that from the time that he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He knew that when Jesus said, I am going to use you as an instrument for my glory. I'm going to use you as an instrument for my church. And Paul said, here's my life. He knew it wasn't going to be easy, but Paul also knew it was going to be worth the fight. As a matter of fact, he said, I have fought the good fight at the end there in 2 Timothy. And as he says that, you can go throughout the different letters to all the churches and you can see how he fought and what took place in the middle of those fights. If you go to the book of Philippians, it talks much about the fight that he's in. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Some verses you've probably heard before. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or death. That's a fight. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Go a little bit further into the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 7 through 14. It says, but everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I consider them as dung, so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having righteousness of my own from the law, but the one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from Christ based on faith. My goal is to know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to him in his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. That is a fight. Verse 12, not that I've already reached this goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort. I fight to take hold of it because of all that has been taken hold of by me in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and pressing on, or as this version says, reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God, heavenly call in Christ Jesus. 
A little bit further in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. If there's a word to underline in your Bibles, that is it. Being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things. I am able to be content through him who strengthens me. Jump over the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. I'm sure you've heard this one before. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians, also full of challenges to the church at Corinth. If you look at verse 23 through 33 in chapter 11, it talks about the physical beatings that Paul has taken, all the things that he's gone through. If you look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12, he talks about these mental battles that he's fought through. But then you look at verse 9 that wraps that up and it says these words. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. Do you see the common theme throughout what Paul's talking about here? It's the fact that Jesus is in his corner. Jesus is in his corner, just like Rocky had Mickey in his corner. I'm not sure if you pay attention or watch any of the movies, but my favorite character in, in the, the first three Rockies, because he dies in number three, sorry to spoil that for you, the movie's 30 years old, but uh, you know, it's okay. He dies in that third one because Clever Lang pushes him. He dies of a heart attack later. Made me really not like Mr. T for a long time in my life because he killed Mickey. But Mickey was always in the corner. He was always challenging Rocky with some of the most famous quotes from the entire movie series. And this one up here, Chris is like, you're not really going to say that, are you? He's like, Mick, you're going you're gonna to eat lightning and you're going to crap Sunday. And she's like, you're not going to really say that. I'm like, well, we already talked about dung in Philippians, so we should be fine, okay? It's just a different <laughs> word for it. And, you know, there is these challenges coming down from Mickey, but the great thing is the challenge coming from our corner with Jesus is when he says, hey, all you who are weary, all you who need rest, come to me. Come to me and be strengthened. He says, you can't do this on your own. We have to understand this fight that we are in as we fight this good fight. We cannot do it on our own. Paul fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith, and he challenged Timothy to do the same. As a matter of fact, I kind of quoted just one small part of 1 Timothy chapter 6, but verse 3 really sets up our fight for today. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 3 says, If anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people from whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. That is a fight. It's a fight we still see even today. Says, but godliness without, with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If you have a highlighter, highlight that. What do we content in? Talks about it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich, they fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Do we see that today? That love that overtakes people's integrity and he overtakes people's decisions the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil by craving it some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs 
Again, every day, we see people drifting away from God and drifting towards materialism and all the things that money can bring. And they, they, they just have that love and it puts God on the back burner. But look what he says in verse 11. He says, but you, but you, man of God, and if you're a woman, put it in there. You, woman of God, flee from these things. But instead, where are you going to? You're going to pursue righteousness. You're going to pursue godliness. You're going to pursue faith and love and endurance. You know what we talked about for the last three weeks in our United? Faith, love, hope, endurance. Be united in these things. That's the stuff we need to be chasing after, not the stuff of this world. And gentleness. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Chase after God. Chase after that eternal life. Chase after that hope. Endure. Persevere. You can't serve both God and money. Jesus says it. But yet we try. And that is the fight that we see and the fight that we're going to talk about today. See, the gospel that we've been called to by God is a gospel that we need to take a hold of. It's a gospel that we know has changed our lives and has given us eternal life. And we hold on to that hope and we take ownership of that hope and then we live it out. We own it. We own it, right, Rick? I own you. Remember remember that from last week? Um, he's a Bears fan. I just wanted to t- touch on that real quick. Um, uh, <laughs> um, the, the, the challenge, though, is this. Paul gives a challenge to Timothy to own the faith, to make it your own, to pursue after these things. And not only does he give it to Timothy, you know who else he does? Because it's been preserved in writing for thousands of years, he's given it to us as well. God has this challenge for us. Fight the good fight. Persevere. Live out the gospel. Focus on Christ. Don't live in the blur. Pursue righteousness. Don't lose focus on Christ. Don't lose focus on the mission that he has given for each and every one of us. That's a big battle, though. It is a big battle, and the first battle that we're going to talk about today. I have thrown a ton of scripture at you already, and we're not even to the scripture we're actually going to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles, do me a favor. Open up to Acts chapter 19 for me. Open up to Acts chapter 19 for me, and as you do that, we are going to be diving in and looking at Paul and his challenge to the church at Ephesus. But what I want to do is I want to ask maybe a few more questions that attach to that, what does it mean to fight the good fight? The first question is this, what is it that gets in the way of you following and serving Jesus? That's a tough question. I told you I'm going to make you mad, so this is probably where it's all going to start at, okay? So if you're going to turn off YouTube, now's the time. Um, What keeps you from saying yes? What is it that creates that distraction from the mission for us to instead chasing after that, to chase after the things of this world? How do we persevere? How do we fight the good fight when everything inside of us actually wants to fight for our idols instead of fight for God? How do we have this battle? How do we keep focus when everything in the world is saying, hey, just look over here. I know there's things going on over here that, that I don't want you to see. Just look over here and lose your focus on what you're supposed to actually be doing. These are all questions I think will be answered in some way, shape, or form in Acts chapter 19. Now, Acts 19 opens up with Paul going into Ephesus. And if you are aware of Ephesus, obviously the, the letter of Ephesians that was written is written to this church that's in this city. And some, here's some things you need to know about Ephesus. Ephesus was actually the richest city in the richest region in the Roman Empire. So it was very 
wealthy. It was a primary port that all the regions of the trade came in and out. So imports and exports and people groups were all in and out of this city. So you can imagine the different religions, you can imagine the different cultures, you can imagine all of this being a big, huge hodgepodge in the middle of this city. Ephesus also had the largest library in the world. So you can imagine the, the learned people that were there. There's also trends that were set because of the wealth and the cosmopolitan type of atmosphere. They were the trend setters for all of this. But the big thing about Ephesus was this. It was also the home to the world's largest temple at the time, to the temple dedicated to Artemis or Diana, depending upon which name you went by. It was actually considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world because it was so large, and it had a statue of Artemis in the center. The crazy thing about this statue is it was actually carved from a meteorite that had fallen from the sky. So it had all of this significance in, in each one of their lives. And Artemis, or Diana, was actually considered the protector of Ephesus. The reason for the prosperity was found in Artemis. That's what they truly held on to and they truly believed. So Paul enters in and he begins sharing the gospel. He enters into the city and he begins sharing the gospel. And as he's sharing the gospel, you'll see in the first nine verses, he even meets some very religious people who are living at the code of John the Baptist, but they had never received the Holy Spirit. And so a whole life change happens for them. And they begin prophesying, they begin doing all these different things because Jesus comes into their lives. And they're, they're changed. And, and that's what we need to see in our own. But then we pick up in verse 11. Verse 11 starts off with these words, God was performing. God was doing this, by the way. It wasn't Paul, and we never want to get confused with that, but he was using Paul. He says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. And I have to pause right there for just a second, because by definition, what is a miracle? It's something extraordinary, isn't it? So how can you have an extraordinary, extraordinary miracle? It must have been a pretty big deal for Luke to put that word in there to, to describe it in such a way. So we see that this extraordinary, extraordinary miracle is taking place. What is it? Well, verse 12 says, so that even face, face cloths, or some say handkerchiefs, or aprons that had touched Paul were brought to the sick and diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. That's pretty extraordinary. That's an extraordinary miracle. And then it says, some itinerant or traveling Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Let me just tell you, this is not the way to do it. Okay, because we see what happens next. The seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, I recognize Paul, but who are you? That might be kind of an ultimate diss, don't you think? Just, just a little bit of a, ah, yeah, I know Jesus because we've gone to battle. I know Paul because we've gone to battle. Who are you? I don't ever want the demons to say, well, who are you? I want them to know who I am. And they want, I want them to know that I have the power of Jesus in my corner and we're fighting. I don't ever want that to be the question. Does the enemy know who you are? Verse 16 says this, then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. There's all kinds of wounding going on here, right? I mean, if you're naked, you got beat pretty bad, and you're naked. 
So on top of it all, you have physical, you have mental, you have emotional, you have spiritual wounds all taking place in the middle of this. Verse 17 says, when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. And then the name of the Lord Jesus was actually held in high esteem. Some translations probably say something along the lines that it was lifted up or his name was held in reverence. What it really means is there was a great awakening. There was a revival that was taking place because they saw the power of the dark side, but they also saw the power of Jesus through the hands of Paul. And many who became believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. While many of those who practiced magic, by the way, that was a huge business to be able to do that, collected their books. And what's it say there? They burned them. They didn't go sell them down at Hastings, even though those Hastings is long gone. Some of you don't even know the reference I'm making right now. They didn't go sell them to, to profit a little bit off it. They burned them. And it says, as they burned them, they did it in front of everyone. And then they calculated the value and they found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Their eyes were opened. The old had gone. The new had come. And they burned their stuff worth 50,000 pieces of silver. You know how much that's worth in today's currency? Roughly $7 million. Can you imagine just burning up $7 million because Christ came into your life and you knew that stuff was garbage and you had to get rid of it and nobody else could have it either because you didn't want them to have that garbage? I remember when I was in high school, a friend of mine, Darren McWaters, he's a pastor now in California. Um, we went to a summer camp and he had CDs like nobody I'd ever seen before. And CDs, by the way, in case you guys are wondering, um, or they used to put music on them. There are these round discs that you could actually put in your car. Um, but he had probably 300 plus, and they're all, we'll use the word, secular. They were all mainstream. They weren't Christian. He was challenged to take all those CDs when we got home from camp, and he just took them all to the dumpster and threw them all away. You know what you could have got at Hastings for all that? But he's like, no, I can't. I can't pass that on. And I remember that pretty vividly, and I see that even here, and I see that as they calculated it out, it says here in verse 20, in this way, the word of the Lord spread. And what's that next word? Prevailed. It pushed on. It prevailed. It, it fought on. And it won. And so we see that there's some crazy things going on. And guess what happens? It gets the attention of these businessmen in the area. And one businessman in particular by the name of Demetrius. He was a silversmith. And the silversmith who made the idols of Artemis or Diana. He carved them out. He shaped them in such a way. And it got his attention because he was getting worried that if people stopped worshiping Diana, if people stopped wor worshiping Artemis, he's not going to be able to sell his statues. Well, if he's not going to be able to sell his statues, he's not going to make any money and then he's going to be in trouble, right? So he gets kind of caught up in all of this. And he begins, as the Bible says, creating a major disturbance about the way. A major disturbance about the way. He gets together with all the other vendors and he starts getting them all riled up. And in verse 25, it says these words, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. Our prosperity is derived from this idol worship. And we see that can happen big in our own lives, don't we? That if something gets shut down, it's going to affect an entire community. Let's point out the obvious. When COVID hit, and everything got shut down. How did the mountain resort towns do? They couldn't have skiing anymore. They couldn't have all of the things that drew tourists to. I mean, we felt the hit last year with Albuquerque's Balloon Fiesta, did we not? 
when nobody came and it affects the hotels and it affects the restaurants and it affects the tourist shops. And it, I mean, it goes across the board. You feel the effects. And Demetrius is trying to say, hey, we can't let this gospel spread any further because this isn't gonna be an 18 month or a two week flatten the curve kind of shutdown. This is going to be permanent. And we can't have permanent. So he gets everybody built up in a frenzy. And he says these words in verse 26. You see and hear that it's not only happening here in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia. This man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people. He's misled them, by the way, with what? The fact that gods cannot be made by hands. He said that? No way. That's not even possible. Let that just sink in for just a second. The thing that you've concocted with your own hands, you are now worshiping. It sounds ridiculous. When you let it really sink in, you're like, how dumb can people be? I know I've used the word crap, dung, and dumb all in the same sermon. I apologize to any kids who are listening. Here's the thing. Do we not do that ourselves sometimes? Is there a God that we make that isn't the real God, one that's shaped with our thoughts, one that's shaped with our mouths, one that, that is shaped with our hands because we need a God that fits into our little mold, our little box, one that we can control, one that, that won't challenge us, one that will not offend us, one that won't go against our wishes. Do we have those gods in our lives? I'll answer for you. Yes, we do. Each and every one of us do. And I think that's where I was starting to get angry at myself as I prepared this message. And Demetrius, he's feeding off of that, saying, hey, we can't lose those gods. We can't have some other God that's in control that takes away the control in our own lives. No, he says this in verse 27. Not only do we run a risk that our businesses may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin the very one of all Asia and the world worship. Artemis needs our protection. She can't protect herself. The great protector of the city can't protect herself. That's what we're sitting at. But then you have this in verse 28. When they had heard this, they were filled with rage and they began to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and so they all rushed together into the amphitheater and they drag along Gaius and Aristarchus, the Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. The records say nearly 25,000 people could fit into this amphitheater. And it was packed full. And for two hours, you had one half going, Arda, and the other half going, Miss, Arda, Miss. And they're just chanting and they're screaming and they're all in this big, huge frenzy and all kinds of craziness is going on. And guess what? Paul's getting a little worked up inside. He's like, oh, you want to fight? Bring it. I'm going out there. I'm going to take on 25,000 people right now. And all his friends are like, dude, you being dead is not going to help anything because they're just going to kill you. They're all in this frothy frenzy. They're, they're screaming. They're yelling. They're all kinds of crazy. As a matter of fact, they didn't even know what they were doing. Look what it says in verse 32. Some were shouting one thing. Some were shouting another because the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they'd come together. Have we seen that by chance in the last like 18 months? People just kind of riding and no, let's just go throw rocks and stuff. I don't know why. Let's burn that car and flip things over. Sounds like fun. Yeah, it's just that mob mentality takes over and confusion took over. And so... They're all sitting there going, well, I don't even know why we're here. I don't even know what we're actually against. 
but it sure sounds fun. So let's gather together. And so that's why the guy said, don't go out there, Paul, because they don't even know what they're against. You can't talk about what you're for if they don't even know what you're fighting against. So eventually the crowd dies down and he continues to fight the good fight Paul does as he spreads the gospel. And we see it continue out through Acts 18, 19, 20 that I asked you guys read this week. I'm not sure if you had a chance to do that and you kind of see it all play itself out. But here's what I want you to see from this passage today. Here's what I want you to see from this passage today. We too have to fight the good fight. And this is what the fight is against. It's against our little gods. Because Paul went head to head with the gods that were created with Jesus in his corner. He fought the good fight. Today we need to do the same thing. We all have battles against idols in our lives. And the thing is, is each of us in here have different idols, different things that we put in front of God. But in order to fight against our idols, we have to know our opponent. And though we have all different idols, there's a similarity amongst them all. And we have to understand some of those things about the idols in order to get them out of our lives. The first thing I want you to write down is this. We have to know idols are anything that promises life and security and joy apart from God. An idol is anything that offers us life and security and joy apart from God. That's what Artemis did. I mean, the people truly believed that that meteorite that fell from the sky that they had carved into something else provided security and joy that they needed to live. I mean, she was the giver of prosperity. She was the giver of protection. As long as she was happy, then they were happy. And we see that playing itself out in their lives. But let me ask you, what is that idol in your life that does that? That you think promises life and safety and security and all the things they need to live? You're like, well, I don't know. I think the best way to do is ask this question to yourself. What is it that you say today that if that thing is present in your life, your life will be good? But if that thing is removed from your life, your life will not be good. What is that thing? What is that thing that we hold on to? And, and I, I know we've said it a lot, and I'll say it again, but the reality is it doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a good thing. But as I've said before, when a good thing becomes a God thing, then it becomes a bad thing. What thing have we taken and lifted to the place of God? What thing have we broken the first commandment that there should be no other gods before me? What thing have we put there? Is it success? Is it health? Is it beauty? Is it safety? Is it romance? Is it affection? Is it comfort? Is it convenience? Is it marriage? Is it kids? Is it stuff? Is it more money? Is it a job? Is it family? Is it dreams? What, what, what things is it for you? What would happen if any of those things I just listed ceased to happen or ceased to exist? You already have them in your life and they cease to exist. How would you respond? Would you still have joy? Would you still be content? Could you be content? I mean, that's what Paul wrote to Timothy. That's what Paul wrote in Philippians. Be content. Be content in what? Christ. But what things do we try and find contentment in that aren't Christ? Excuse me. Second idol. Second thing about idols. I'm going to use a word here. Trigger. Idols trigger the deepest emotions in our hearts. 
threaten somebody's idol, you'll see some sort of anger or violence come from them. Just, again, pay attention to the last 18 months. Because when you're attacking somebody's protectors, you're going to trigger them to want to protect it. And maybe, again, I said, you, you might get mad at me. Maybe those things have already started and you've already been triggered in some way. But which idol is it for you that triggers those deep emotions? Emotions. If someone dared to say, your love for that idol is greater than your love for God, how would you respond to that? Would you say, you know what, you're right. I need to lay this thing down. Or would you angrily defend I mean, you know, the funny thing about idols, I heard somebody say this one time, idolizing something ultimately keeps you from being able to completely enjoy it. Idolizing something keeps you from ultimately being able to enjoy it. If you idolize your marriage, you're constantly worried about how it is, how strong it can be, and what it looks like to people on the outside. If you idolize your kids, you become obsessive and controlling and all sorts of other things over the top of them. If you idolize your money, you never have enough to enjoy. You always have to have money, uh, more money to continue to feel that contentment. The funny thing is, in the church, in the church, what sermon topic do people dread the absolute most? Absolutely. I dread giving it. I don't, I don't want to talk about money. I don't like to talk about money. But here's the thing I thought about. What's people's reactions to talking about money? They get angry. How dare that pastor talk about that? How, how dare that? What's the response to having an idol? It triggers that deep emotion of anger. It, it, it triggers that deep emotion of anger, and, and it's a threat to the idol when, when a pastor talks about money. And I don't think I need to explain it too, too much. We talk about it in our, in our membership class, but we don't have any problem funding our idols. We have no problem funding our idols. We have no problem giving our time to our idols. We have no problem giving our talents to our idols. We have no problem giving our, our finances to our idols. But when we say, hey, we need you to do that for God, <gasps> how dare they? And that's not where we should be at. See, the reason why we have to have those deep triggered emotions is because those things we desperately want to sustain the weight of our eternal joy. Those things we desperately want to sustain the weight of our eternal souls, but they are unable. There's no marriage, there's no family, there's no husband, there's no wife, there's no thing, there's no house, there's no car that can sustain that desire for eternal joy or eternal hope. Only Christ can do that. Third thing is, is idols need to be protected. Demetrius goes out of his way to protect his great protector. He gets people into a frenzy. He gets people obsessed about it. He's thinking about it from every single angle to be able to protect her. What thing do you feel obsessive about and making sure that it stays in your life? What thing can you not lose? What's that one thing that you just have to hold on to? That if anything happened to that idol, you'd just be, your life would be over. Fourth, idols demand sacrifices to make them happy. Again, I already said in Ephesus, if Artemis wasn't happy, ain't nobody happy. 
And, and that's the thing that we have in our lives, that we have to do something to keep that idol happy. What does it look like? Well, again, ask yourself this question. If you really want me, then you would be willing to give up this for me. What thing or person has ever said that to you? And I started writing some things down. Maybe that thing that you go after is success. Success in business. But success in business takes so long. What if we just cut a few corners? What if I sacrifice just a little bit of my integrity? By the way, sacrificing a little bit is sacrificing a lot. What if I sacrifice that so I can make this business thing happen? I've thought about it in the church. Let me just be very frank and honest with you, not that I haven't been all morning. Um, the, the, the truth of church can be this. There's a formula to make a big church happen fast. And generally it's remove Jesus. It is pull Jesus back and just touch on him a little bit, but just make people feel good. I want you to feel good, but I want you to feel good about Jesus and what he's done for you in your life and what he's going to continue to do. And, and I know that if you, you put on the biggest show and you, and you preach the, the feel-good TED Talk messages, then you're going to grow your church and it's going to grow fast, but you're going to grow it with fluff. And that's not what God has called us to do. And that's sacrificing a bit of integrity even in that. So what does it look like if you sacrifice? I know that God has called me to, to give my life to his mission. I know that. And my guess is you know that too. But what's our sacrifice? God, I don't have time for that right now. I don't have time to give for those things. I, I, I have my kingdom that I need to grow. I'm not worried too much about your kingdom just yet. I'll get to it. That's a sacrifice. Right now, my kingdom includes a bigger house or a bigger car or more stuff or all the list of all the things. I mean, you can fill it in. And we'll say, God, I'll get to it. What things are we sacrificing? I know, God, you're calling me to, to serve. I know, God, you're calling me to go. I know, God, you're calling me to share. I know, God, you're calling me to give. What's the biggest hurdle for sharing Christ for each and every one of us? It's fear of what other people think, isn't it? And so we sacrifice their possible eternity because we're worried about our feelings or what people might think we say oh well that's not easy that's going to cost me that's the idol of comfort and convenience coming right to the surface we have to lay down that idol I know my kids need me but how many people have sacrificed their kids on the altar of work on the altar of and you can name it I know lots of pastors whose kids have turned out very poorly and I know why because I have struggled with it myself ministry is a 24-7 gig you're always on call you're always being pulled from something that your kids are doing or you're supposed to be a part of to go and do that it is a struggle for me because sometimes I just have to say no and sometimes I have a struggle saying no because I, I want to be there as the pastor I mean there's thanksgivings we've given up because a, a, a kid in our youth group had committed suicide there, there are so many things that, that you, you give up. And that's true for each and every one of us. And sometimes it's because you, you want that to, to be that pastor, you want to be that person, and sometimes it's because you want that stuff and you have to work extra because you, you want to make those things, your kids happy, so you have to buy them more stuff, and it's just a big mess. What things do we sacrifice? It's a problem 
that we all run into. And the biggest problem is, is that idols always want more. They always want more. And what do they want more of? They want more of your time. They want more of your integrity. They want more of your everything. But is it worth it? That's the question I have to ask you. Fifth thing is on our list here, idols are more than just a mental battle. They're also a spiritual battle. Since the beginning, Satan has preached, if you do this, then you will be like God. If you do this, then you'll be your own great provider or you can create your own great provider. What is that thing that is that battle for you that is always taking place? I mean, think about the seven sons of Siva. They were trying to fight a battle on their own and they lost. But those around them, their eyes were open to Christ who is the great protector. The gospel should open our eyes and strengthen us for our battles. We should hold on to that. So I'm going to just wrap up with three quick truths because I just looked up and saw what time it is, so I'm going to do this real quick. Three quick truths I want you to hold on to as we look further into Acts and we continue on with this. One thing is this. One true true God is the only one that gives life. An idol will not give you life. Jesus himself said he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man will come to the Father except through him. He also said he has come to give us life and life in abundance. Life in the full not kill, steal, and destroy like those idols will do. Second thing is, is the one true God doesn't need you to protect him. Scripture is very clear that he is our refuge, that he is our strength, that he is our salvation. I'm not sure if you remember about 10 years ago, the gospel, or sorry, uh, Dare to Share came out, a thing called the gospel, and, and in it, it was life in six words. And I remember it was a spoken word poet that that went through it, but he said, you don't have to defend a lion. You just have to unlock the cage. We can't keep God bottled up. We don't have to defend him. He is a lion, and and he will take care of himself. Third thing is, is the one true God doesn't need a sacrifice. He already offered his own sacrifice. He offered his own. No idol can say that. Now, you might say, well, doesn't God want our lives? Absolutely. He wants us to give it willingly, not to appease him in some way, shape, or form. It's like a marriage. You know, when, when you're married, you, you don't go into that marriage in a way going, well, I have to do this and I have to do this. It's, I get to do that. I get to do that because we're working together. Fourth and final one, the one true God is the one that should trigger our deepest emotions. When we come to worship, it should be because he's triggered our deepest emotions. God, Give us clean hands. God, give us pure hearts. Let us not turn our souls to another. Oh, God, let us be a generation that seeks. Seeks your face, oh God of Jacob. Let us seek your will. Let us live for your kingdom because he alone, God, he deserves our worship. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for today. And thank you for this opportunity to be able to hear from your word. And I know from personal experience, these were not easy words to hear. The struggle is real. The fight is real. We saw the the struggle with Paul to fight the good fight. But he did it with Jesus in his corner. We can't do it on our own. We can't fight this fight on our own. We can't want to try harder because we're only going to fail in our own strength. When we have the power of Jesus, we have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, God, you transform us. And God, we want to give you all the glory and all the honor this morning as the battles that have been won. 
to say thank you for that power. And we want to repent of the battles we've lost because we've tried to do it on our own. God, we want you to have the glory this morning. We pray it all in your name. Amen. I'm going to step over here off to the side. I'd love to pray with you. But this is, this is one of the things I... Um, my, the times I, I think of probably most is in the shower. Maybe you guys are similar to that. There's nobody bugging you. Well, at least not most of the time. Um, and, and I got to thinking this morning, I'm like, I just need to repent. I just need to turn my face to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I failed you. Repent means to make a 180, to turn away from that idol and to turn towards God. Maybe that's you too. Maybe it's at your seat. Maybe it's here on the altar. Maybe it's over there with me as we pray. But we're going to sing that song, Give Us Clean Hands. And I pray that these words are more than just words on a screen, but they're the prayer of your heart. Would you stand with us as we sing?